Uh, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Severn, um, those here and those online. I, um, real quick, I just wanted to make mention of the fact that things are a little bit different this morning. So today is actually the end of um, something that our church looks forward to every year called Winter Relief. Actually, uh, just last night, somebody referred to Winter Relief as, as our church's Super Bowl, and that's what it is. Something we look forward to, to um, every year. It's, it's uh, for those of you tuning in from home that are unaware of what it is, it's a, um, a one-week thing that we do once a year where our church gets a chance to meet uh, some of the most amazing people from our community. We always wind up learning more from them and getting more from them than they could possibly ever get from us. And so uh, for today's service, we did things a little bit differently. For those joining at home, we have a, a really small group of people physically attending with us today. And then, of course, most of you are, are joining online. And so I say that to say, if you're on the other side of a screen right now and you see me look to my left, I'm looking at those people. And for those of you here today, if you see me stare at this camera, that's what I'm doing. And I said that because I was going to get totally in my own head if I didn't say it. So now I've completely excused myself for acting weird this morning. All that being said, I want to welcome you to week three uh, of our series called Belief in the Age of Skepticism. And the goal of this series is remarkably clear. Uh, it's about communicating the truth of Christianity in a way that builds your faith. And so what we've been doing, um, it's going to be a nine-week series where we're just looking at the foundations of uh, Christian belief. And when I say that, it's important to note that this series is not just about going over stuff that Christians believe. This series is about offering Christianity's answers to life's biggest questions. And obviously, as a Christian minister, I'm a little bit biased. I believe that Christianity has the best answers because I believe that Christianity is true. And so today, we're going to be looking at Christianity's answer to a question that every belief system struggles with, and I'm sure every single person listening to me right now has asked at at least one point in your life. The question is, what's wrong with the world? Uh, it's amazing, e even as divided, uh, my, my dad, my father was born in 1945, and he told me he has never seen the culture, the world, more divided than it is right now, and, and maybe you can, you, you can agree with that. But even as divided as things are right now, one of the few things that just about everybody still agrees on is um, there's something wrong down here. You know, you look out and you see the way, just, just the way that people treat each other, and it's very clear that something is off with humanity. And we live in a culture in which, it, which it's increasingly common for us to view our problems as largely outside of ourselves. And, and what Christianity would say to that is that while there are a whole lot of things in this world uh, outside of us that can exacerbate our problems, um, whether that's a really tough childhood, um, whether that's uh, you know, inequality, unjust social systems, you name it, while there's a lot of things outside of us that can exacerbate our problems, uh, Christianity teaches that mankind's fundamental problem is actually within us. And I realize that that can sound like a little bit of a downer on Sunday morning, but I actually believe um, this idea that mankind's fundamental problem is within us, this thing that the Bible calls sin, I actually believe that that's an incredibly hopeful idea, which might sound really strange to you, but to explain that, I wanted to begin our time together this morning um, with a personal story. So when I was 21 years old, um, it was, I believe it was October uh, of the year I was 21 years old, I woke up one morning um, with stiffness in my neck, which is horrifying, I know. Um, wouldn't go away, 
And after a few days, it, it turned into a low-grade fever, which was strange for me at the time because I, um, I used to never get sick. Now that I have four kids who I'm convinced are trying to poison me, I get sick all the time. Back then, I hardly ever got sick. So I had a low-grade fever that I couldn't shake for a few days. And so I went to the doctor. He prescribed me an antibiotic. And the antibiotic took the fever away, but it also caused me to break out in, in full-body hives that literally covered me from head to toe. And I remember my feet itched so bad that I had, I had to burn them in the bathtub with scalding hot water just to get them to stop itching long enough so I could go to sleep. And so I went back to the doctor, super thankful for his miracle drug that he prescribed for me. He could see that I was covered in hives. And so he then prescribed me a high-dose steroid, something known as prednisone. And so I took prednisone which temporarily caused the hives to subside, but then my symptoms started getting even more weird. What happened after that was I started randomly losing the ability to hold food down with no warning, uh, which was a lot of fun. My sinuses locked up to the point that I could not breathe out of my nose for literally weeks at a time. And then probably the strangest symptom that I experienced was I would start randomly, profusely sweating. I remember I was sitting in a Bible study and all of a sudden, beads of sweat just started rolling off of me, um, which I'm assuming, you know, the guy leading the Bible study probably thought I was under intense conviction to sin. It wasn't the case. I just couldn't, I just couldn't control it. And um, actually really freaked me out. And this had been going on at that point for about six weeks. I'd been to the doctor three different times, the ER once, and nobody as of yet could tell me what was wrong with me. Uh, and so finally, this is kind of like the grand finale of this really weird section of my life, uh, my throat started swelling shut. And I remember I could look in the, in the mirror, I was living with my, with my parents at the time, I could look in the mirror in their upstairs bathroom and I could actually see my throat getting, you know, tighter and tighter as the days went on. And it got to the point that my throat had swollen so shut that uh, the act of breathing was activating my gag reflex. And so I, um, I couldn't eat, I couldn't drink, uh, it was getting difficult to breathe, and I, I remember it very vividly, laying on the bathroom floor, just dehydrating, and finally threw in the towel, we called 911, they scooped me up in an ambulance, took me to the hospital, they admitted me, a doctor came in my room, and he diagnosed me with mono, mononucleosis, and uh, he actually told me, which he thought it was amusing, I didn't think anything was amusing at the time, that I had basically um, exhibited every symptom you can exhibit with mono. And so they, they hooked me up to anti uh, uh, IV antibiotics, IV steroids, and they put me on Dilaudid every six hours, which was wild. And finally, after three days, um, uh, after this, this long period of time, I'd been sick for six weeks, finally in the hospital after three days and losing 16 pounds, um, I started to recover. But I remember... Uh, being in my room during that six-week period where I had all these symptoms, but I didn't know what was wrong with me. I remember in the middle of that, I got so angry that I picked up a chair and I threw it against the wall as hard as I could, which was not very hard at that point in my life because I was, I was so frustrated. And the reason for that anger, uh, and, and maybe somebody listening to me right now can, can relate to this, the reason I was so angry was because for me, there was nothing more frustrating than knowing that there was something wrong with me without knowing exactly what it was or what I was supposed to do about it. Uh, and, and, and so when a doctor finally walked into my room and diagnosed me, it, it wasn't a condemning thing for me. It was actually freeing. It was like the fog had lifted. I finally had some clarity. I knew what we were dealing with. And so the healing process could finally begin. And I tell that story simply because that's what the Bible offers us with this thing called the doctrine of sin. 
without the doctrine of sin, really all we're left with as the human race is, is you know, we're in the same place that I was in the middle of, of that six-week period of time where I knew something was wrong with me without knowing what it was. But what the Bible does for us with the doctrine of sin is it identifies what's wrong with us, only it does so not to condemn us, but so that the healing process can finally begin in our lives. And so what I want to do this morning is spend just a little bit of time looking at the moment that sin entered the world. And I'm going to be in Genesis chapter 2. I want to read chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, and then chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. So first off, Genesis chapter 2, 16 and 17, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die." And then Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 9 reads, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, You will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? This is God's word. What we're looking at this morning is, is Christianity's answer to the question, what is wrong with the world? And the answer, according to Scripture, is this thing called sin. And so what I want to do today uh, is look at sin and ask four questions of this passage. First off, we're going to ask, where does sin come from? Secondly, what is it? Thirdly, what does it do? And then fourthly and lastly, what can be done about it? So with that, I want to get to the first question we're asking this morning. Number one, the question is, where does sin come from? So in in, uh, chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, uh, God gives the first man a command. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. And then in chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, we read, No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, obviously, uh, this is a direct contradiction to what God has said. God has said, eat this fruit and you will die. Uh, The serpent comes along and says, not only will you not die if you eat this fruit, but actually you will finally begin to live. And so what what I want to point out here is what the serpent's actually trying to do. You notice he's not trying to get them to question whether or not God is real. 
He's trying to get them to question whether or not God is good. And what the serpent is, is, is saying, this is the essence of his lie, what he's saying is you can't really trust that God loves you. You can't trust that God wants what's best for you. And if you put yourself in his hands and surrender completely to his will, then your life will never be what it could have otherwise been. Uh, that's the lie of the serpent that day that derailed all humanity. And according to scripture, that lie has passed deeply into every single human heart. And before I move on from this idea, I would just ask you to consider how well this idea explains human behavior. Let, let, me, let me just look at three examples of this and, and ask the question first off, why is it, this is super common in our culture, why is it that so many people work themselves to death uh, trying to either prove to themselves or to the people around them their value, ruining their own lives in the meanwhile. The, the reason is, at bottom, is because we simply don't trust God enough to get our sense of value from him. All right, uh, let me ask the question secondly, why is it that so many of us are so undone by the thoughts and the opinions of the people around us? Uh, and the answer, again, is because we simply don't trust God enough to get our sense of self-worth from him. Or, or thirdly, maybe this is going to hit home for somebody today, why is it that so many of us are so exhausted, desperately trying to maintain control of our lives, uh, wrapped around the axle with anxiety about what might happen to us tomorrow? And the answer underneath that at bottom is very simply because we don't trust God enough to get our sense of safety from him. And so my point in saying all that is that this right here, what we're seeing, this lie to the, to, to the man and the woman originally, this is where every sin that any person has ever committed fundamentally comes from. It comes from this belief that's passed into every single human heart that we can't really trust God. We can't really trust that he loves us. We can't really trust that he wants what's best for us. And so therefore we have to take our lives into our own hands. That's where sin comes from. Now, secondly, building off of that, the second question I want to go over today, is number two, what actually is sin? Which is a question that, that's so obvious that I think a, a lot of times we don't even really ask that or think too deeply about that. Now, on the surface, this story gives us the picture of sin that I think everybody's used to. You have uh, God telling the people, don't do this thing. The people do that thing. And obviously, that's sin. Anytime you have a command from God and you violate that command, that is, you know, literally the definition of sin. But if you keep reading through scripture and specifically get to the teachings of Jesus, what you'll realize is that while, while sin manifests itself in our lives on the surface as behavior, uh, the Bible says that, that the, the, uh, the essence of sin, what sin really is, is something much deeper than just surface level behavior. And this story actually explains what I'm trying to say in a really vivid way. Uh, if you notice this, Right before the man and the woman eat the fruit, the specific temptation that the serpent put out there for them was that if they ate the fruit that day, they would be like God. And that, uh, the Bible teaches, is what all of us are after. This desire to put ourselves in the place that only God deserves to be in. That's the essence of sin. It's not just about breaking rules or doing bad things. Uh, it's about putting ourselves in the place of God, trying to be our own Savior and Lord. And this is where I think Christianity really begins to break from 
um, basically the teachings of every other belief system, every other religion, because there's two main ways scripture talks about that, that people can try to get out from under God's authority and be their own savior and Lord. Uh, one way is the obvious way, all right? One way that, that, that people go through life trying to be their own savior and Lord is by being a very quote unquote bad person that breaks all the rules. But what might surprise somebody to hear is that the other way that people do this and can do this is by being a very quote-unquote good person uh, who actually keeps all the rules. Because that's exactly what a Pharisee was. Uh, a Pharisee is very simply someone who on the surface lives a, a squeaky clean life, a life that you can't point to them and point out where they're obviously living in disregard of any moral rule that God's laid down. But underneath all of their obedience, underneath all of their good deeds, they're not really doing that to serve God. They're doing that to try to get God to serve them, to get God to bless them, to get God to answer their prayers and save them and all that stuff. And so ironically, uh, they're doing the same thing that the people they look down on are doing. They're still living uh, to try to get out from under God's authority and be their own Savior and Lord, but they're actually doing it through their good deeds rather than their bad deeds. That's the essence of what the Bible's talking about when it, when it talks about self-righteousness. And, and when you, I mean, obviously, you know, to people who were living, like Adam and Eve lived here, obviously, to people who were living, you know, in outwardly immoral life, uh, you know, that disregards what God has to say, certainly scripture challenges that. And, and scripture would say, you know, repent, stop doing that. Uh, but when you understand what scripture has to say about sin uh, and the human heart uh, and what sin actually is, I think it's appropriate to say that um, scripture actually challenges people who are living in outwardly moral life um, more so than people who were living an outwardly immoral life. And you see this in Jesus. Um, because all during Jesus' time here, one of the things that I think is most surprising about him is that Jesus butted heads so much more with Pharisees than he did with the tax collectors and the prostitutes. And so, you know, to people who, who go to church every Sunday, to people who, who read the Bible and say their prayers and give and serve and do all these good things, the question that, that Scripture specifically here would have you ask yourself is what's the real reason for all of that good behavior? You know, it's entirely possible, just like the Pharisees, to have everybody around you fooled, but the question is what's the real reason for the good deeds that you do? You know, is, is that obedience, is that birthed from a, a thankful heart that realizes that God has saved you? Um, or is it possible that your good deeds are actually a subtle rebellion against God because you're actually trying to get out from under his authority uh, by believing that you can save yourself? That's a question that nobody can answer for you, but it's a question that this passage would have all of us ask ourselves. And the reason that I wanted to touch on this today is because in, in, in my experience, so many people reject the message of Christianity without really understanding exactly what it's teaching. And I think, you know, in, in our, you know, kind of post-Christian world is what sociologists call it, a lot of people uh, try to reduce Christianity to just, you know, surface-level behavioral modification as though it's basically a spiritualization of the Santa Claus story. You know, that the point of life is to do enough good deeds to avoid winding up on the cosmic naughty list. But Christianity is, is actually teaching something remarkably different than that. And what Christianity is teaching is that you can be you can live an outwardly perfect-looking life 
And meanwhile, be just as far from God as the people who break all the rules that you try so hard to keep. Now, how on earth is that possible? It's possible because sin is not just about breaking rules. Sin is not just about doing morally bad things. Sin is about trying to get out from under God's authority by living as your own Savior and Lord. And when you realize this, when you realize that, that you know, what Scripture has to say about what sin really is and what the human heart is really like, what you realize, and this is specifically a challenge for Christians, is that you cannot look out into the world and, and do the same thing that, that, that really everybody else is doing. Meaning Christians have absolutely no right to look out into the world and divide the world into good people who do good things and bad people who do bad things. Because when you understand what Scripture's teaching us about what sin really is here, you realize this completely levels the playing field and now nobody has a right to look down on anybody else about anything. Because the one thing that we all have in common is that regardless of how our sin happens to manifest itself in our lives, the one thing that we all have in common is that every single one of us has tried to get out from God's authority and put ourselves in his place by trying to live as our own Savior and our own Lord. That's what sin is. Now, building off of that, the third question that I wanted to, to um, ask during our time together is number three, okay, what does sin actually do? And, and, and really, the rest of Genesis chapter three uh, the rest of the Bible, and I would say all of human history actually answers that question for us. But the short answer is, according to this passage, what sin does is it destroys relationships. Um, it, you, you see it immediately. It destroys not only our relationship with God, but, but sin really leaves no relationship unstained. It destroys our relationship with God. It destroys our relationship with each other. And it even, this might, might surprise you to hear, it even destroys our relationship with ourselves. And the reason that sin has the ability to do that is, 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 is because sin does one specific thing according to Genesis chapter 3 here. Sin creates shame. And you see this in, uh, in verse 7, which describes the very first thing that people experience when they sinned. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. So what you're looking at there, it, that's the picture of shame. It's two people who are painfully aware of themselves and who are utterly terrified of anybody else being able to truly see them as they are. Uh, my conviction is that every single person struggles with this. Even, even the, whoever you think of when you think of the most confident person you know, that even they struggle with shame. I don't know if you've ever heard this little axiom that kind of floats around the internet from time to time. Be kind because everyone you meet is, is fighting a silent battle that you know nothing about. According to scripture, that silent battle is a battle with shame. So let's just talk about shame for a minute here. A lot of times when, when people talk about uh, shame, they'll kind of lump sh shame and guilt together as though the two are, are kind of the same thing when they're not. Uh, the truth is with guilt, you're dealing with something very specific, you know, a specific thing that you've done, and it's, it's largely external to you. Shame is um, it's a lot more general, it's a lot more internal, and it's a lot more devastating. Um, guilt is all about the rule you failed to keep, but shame is about the person that you failed to become. So guilt says, I feel bad about what I did, whereas shame says, I feel bad about who I am. 
That's what this couple experienced that day in the Garden of Eden, and it's what Scripture says every single human being has been dealing with since that day. Uh, And and to kind of illustrate this, I want to quote a uh, theologian you may have heard of before. Her name's Madonna. I've been using this quote for years now. She said, I love this quote because it, 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 it tells you what, what shame sounds like in the modern day world. Because obviously it's going to present itself differently in different cultures. This is what shame sounds like today. This is Madonna. She's being interviewed here at the absolute peak of her career. Could not have been more successful than she was right now. And here's what she said. She said, I have an iron will and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. Now, some of you didn't know Madonna was that deep. Some people would hear that and, and, and they would say, well, that's just a really weird person. Scripture would say, no, that's not a weird person. That's just a really honest person. That's someone who, who is willing to look themselves in the eye, who has a deep level of emotional intelligence and self-awareness and is done playing pretend about what's really going on. That's what that is. And what she's saying, that's exactly what, sh- what shame sounds like in the modern day world. Madonna, by her own mission, ad- admission, is not working and striving and achieving purely out of love for her craft or a desire to create something beautiful for the world to enjoy, she's doing so out of this desperate need to make up for some nagging deficiency, to compensate for some nagging inadequacy that she can't quite seem to shake no matter how successful she becomes. And scripture says that every single one of us is like that. What, what Scripture's showing us here is that we all have this deep sense that we don't measure up. We, we all have this deep sense that we're inadequate, that there's something wrong with us, there's some deficiency that we need to compensate for, and so we all construct fig leaves to hide behind. And really some of the most profound self-knowledge that you can have is the knowledge of what your own fig leaves look like. Uh, for Madonna, I mean, she was hoping that, that if she arrived at some level of career success, Maybe then she would be able to deal with, with the shame in her life. Um, but the truth is, we all have something. We all have something that we look to as, as, as our fig leaves. That, that we, we all have something that we're hoping is going to compensate for, for, for our nakedness, for our shame, for our inadequacy, uh, inadequacies and, and, and insufficiencies and all of that. For some people, it's money. For some people, it's romantic love. Uh, it looks different for all of us. But the point is, we're all doing the same thing that Adam and Eve did that day in the garden. We're hiding behind uh, fig leaves. And the problem is that our fig leaves cannot cover us and deal with our shame any better uh, than Adam and Eve's did. Um, and, and there's really not a person, pay raise, or pill in the universe that can make up for what we know is wrong with us. And we waste a whole lot of time. We hurt a whole lot of people, including ourselves, trying to pretend that it can. And so all of this leads us to really what is the most important question we can ask today. It's going to be the, the last question I asked during our time together. Number four, uh, if, if that's how bad the problem is, then lastly, what can be done about sin? And this text that we looked at this morning kind of hints at a solution that the rest of the Bible fleshes out. And what we're seeing here 
already by verse 7, this is just moments after sin entered the world, what we're seeing is that humanity is already beginning to unravel in the wake of sin. Um, what we have now is, is we have shame, we have um, fear, we have distrust, we have uh, blaming, we have you know, relational distance and all that kind of stuff. But in the wake of this, in verse 9, we're told that God calls out and he asks the question, where are you? And in response to that, Adam answers back and he says, well, I was hiding from you because I was afraid because I was, I was naked and so I hid. And so in response to that, God says, well, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat the fruit from the tree that I told you not to eat? Um, and then Adam begins the blame game. He blames Eve, Eve blames the serpent, and on and on it goes. But without getting too far into that exchange, what, what is, what's most noteworthy to me about this exchange between God and the man and the woman is that what we have here is God asking questions that he already knew the answer to. This is the God that created the universe. This is the same God that we get in the rest of the Bible. God knew exactly what Adam and Eve were going to do before they did it. He knew that they were hiding. He knew where they were hiding. He knew why they were hiding and what they had done. And so God was obviously not asking those questions for his own sake. He must have been asking those questions for Adam and Eve's sake. So what exactly is this about? Let me ask you, what other profession is known for asking uh, a person questions, not for their own knowledge, but for the sake of, of the people that the questions are aimed at? There's, 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 there's one profession that's known for that. That's counselors. And so what you have here is, is God is counseling. I remember, you know, I, I have some, some experience with this myself. I remember back in 2012, the summer of 2012, I spent that entire month going to a counselor. And, and while I was in the middle of that process, I would, I would tell my friends, the friends that I was comfortable enough telling I was going to a counselor, I told them that I either had the best or the worst counselor in the world. Uh, and it took me a minute to figure it out because what frustrated me so much is my counselor would almost never tell me anything. He would just keep asking me questions. He was, he was an older guy. He was really wise. And, and looking back, he probably knew everything there was to know about me within about five minutes. Had probably seen dozens of people exactly like me. But over and over and over again throughout our time together, instead of telling me about myself, he would ask me about myself because that's what a good counselor does. A good counselor will ask you questions to get you to think to get you to see yourself, to face what's really going on so that the healing process can finally begin in your life. And that's exactly what you have with God here toward the man and the woman. And it's amazing to me the more that I think about it because Adam and Eve have just done the one thing. I mean, God gave them this entire world to enjoy, this, this, this world that's completely free from sin that you and I have always longed for but never had a chance to experience. God gave them all of that and they threw all of that back in God's face. So, so, so this is Adam and Eve could not have disrespected God anymore, could not have dishonored God anymore, could not have rejected God any more than they had, and yet here God is pursuing them, but not to crush them, not to judge them. He's seeking them in love that he might heal them. Now, if, if, if you stopped reading the Bible here, you would have no idea exactly how far this God would go to pursue humanity that he might heal us and restore us to a right relationship with him and bring us back to that paradise in the garden. But we see exactly how far our God was willing to go in the person and in the work of Christ Jesus. And it's amazing that when you get to the New Testament, one of the ways that Jesus is referred to is as the last Adam. Paul, 
uh, writing to the church in Corinth, when he talked about Jesus, he called Jesus the last Adam, which is, of course, meant to get us to kind of compare and contrast Jesus, the last Adam, to, to this Adam that we looked at in this story today. And when you do so, you see why Scripture calls Jesus the last Adam. Because first off, what we're shown here in this story is that the first Adam was given a test in a garden. His garden was the Garden of Eden. The gospel shows us that Jesus was also presented with a test in a garden. His garden was the Garden of Gethsemane. It was in that garden just hours before he went to the cross that Jesus began to feel the weight of the Father's wrath being poured out on him. And, and Scripture says that he, he labored under such a burden uh, in light of that that his sweat became like drops of blood and he called out to the Father and he said, Father, if there's any other way to accomplish this, if there's any other way to save humanity, if there's any other way to bring them home, let us find that way. But if not, Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. And what we also see here is that, that both of their tests involved a tree. For Adam, it was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For Jesus, his tree was a cross. Adam was told by God, if you obey me about the tree, you'll live. But Jesus knew that if he obeyed God the Father about his tree, it would mean that he would have to die. Adam failed his test, and it brought death to us all. But the gospel says that Jesus passed his test and now life can come to every single one of us by grace through faith in his name. That's the gospel. See, earlier what we talked about is, is that sin, what it foundationally is, sin is simply mankind putting itself in the place of God. And, and so what the gospel shows us is that if sin is man putting itself in the place of God, then salvation is about God putting himself in the place of man. And that's exactly what Jesus came down here to do. On the cross, he hung on that cross, um, forsaken by God, being crushed under the wrath of God in your and my place, so that the power of sin that entered the world that day in Genesis chapter 3 might be broken in your and my life. And I've heard it said before that apart from Jesus, our battle with sin is a battle that we cannot win, but because of Jesus and in Jesus and through Jesus, our battle with sin is a battle that we cannot lose. And personally, if you're asking me, I'll take Jesus every single time. Let me call the worship team up. I'm going I'm to close with a story this week that I thought was kind of neat. Um, some of you might know that, that on this church's property, we have a little garage that is a, um, we kind of turned it into a makeshift gym. And I, I've, um, I've bought some, some uh, workout equipment and, and some people have donated things. And so on Monday, I was, I was putting this teaching together and um, I had a little bit of a, a block. And, and so I went out there to work out and right at the beginning of my workout, uh, I realized the bird was trapped in there with me, a little snowbird, which I, for whatever reason, I really like snowbirds. And um, he was all freaked out. He was scared of me. And so he, he kept running into windows and I felt bad for him because the third time he did it, he made this little noise that, that made me sad because I could tell he hurt himself. And so this, this little snowbird rammed himself into the window. And he, when a bird does that, sometimes they'll go into shock. And so he fell on the windowsill, just kind of like sitting there, like basically hyper ventilating, having a panic attack. And so I opened the door to the garage and I tried to like air traffic control him out of, out of the building, but he, he wouldn't listen to me. And so I had to, to sneak up on him real slowly, real carefully. And I, and I scooped him up in my hands and, and I walked him outside and, and, I, and I uncovered him and he, and he sat in my hand for a moment. And I told my wife, Katie, um, I felt like me and this bird had a moment between our, each other. You know what I mean? Like I, I, he was looking at me and I was looking at him and I sensed in that moment, it was like he was saying, 
you're one of the good ones, Pastor Ryan. And just like that, he flew off. And that story has stuck with me this week in light of this passage because I look back on that and, and, and here's the point of it. That little bird caused himself so much pain for one specific reason. Uh, it's because he didn't trust me. He didn't trust me enough to put himself in my hands. And what we're seeing here at, 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 uh, in Genesis chapter three uh, is that the reason that you and I cause so much pain either to ourselves or to the people around us is for this it's for the very same reason. It's because we do not trust God the Father enough to simply rest in his hands. And the gospel says that Jesus knew that, that Jesus knew that from the moment that that lie from the serpent passed into our hearts, Jesus knew that we would have what you could call cosmic trust issues. He knew that we, we wouldn't have it in us to trust God enough to put ourselves in his hands. So what Jesus did is he put himself in the hands of God the Father for us. And what we see on the cross at Calvary is that Jesus was treated the way that our sins deserve. He was crushed for us. He was shamed for us. He was beaten for us. He was stripped naked for us. He was rejected for us. He was forsaken for us. He experienced everything that we are at bottom most terrified to experience. The reason that we're always trying to hide behind fig leaves. But when we see what Jesus Christ went through for us, when that becomes real to us, we gain the ability to do what Adam and Eve failed to do that fateful day in the garden, which is trust that God the Father really loves us. And so to everyone listening to this today, I'll just close with this. What Jesus Christ would say to you, what he would say to me through the gospel today is very simply, see what I've done for you. See what I've gone through for you. See the price that I was willing to pay to bring you home and trust me enough to put yourself in my hands because the promise of the gospel is that no matter who we've been, no matter what we've done, no matter who we've hurt, if we will simply come to Jesus, our healing process can begin. That's it, and that's all. Let me go ahead and pray for us. <clears throat> Father God, sin is, is, a, is a problem that we have absolutely no solution for in and of our own power. And the more that we live like we can handle that on our own, the more pain we're gonna cause ourselves. Father, would you please give, give myself and everybody listening to this right now the ability to see Jesus, to see what he went through for us, to see the pain that he experienced, the shame that he experienced, the rejection, all of the things that he experienced. Would that love become so real to us, Father God, that we would grow in the ability to do what Adam and Eve failed to do, which is really trust you, to surrender every single part of our lives to you, knowing that you can be trusted. In the name of your son, Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.